Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm glad you could all be here tonight as we continue our Bible study through the book of Revelation. So please take your Bible and invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 11. That will be our text this evening as we will read the first 14 verses of Revelation chapter 11 as we continue this interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. So give your attention, please, as I read God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Revelation 11, chapter 1. Then I, that is John, was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Clear as mud, right? (laughs) This is pretty easy to understand. We'll just, you know, I've read it. We'll talk about it for 10 minutes and we'll, we'll break very early, go to Sweet Treat and get some ice cream. What do you all think about that? Yeah, I didn't think so either. So anyway, just a brief recap to get us up to speed where we're at right now. The last time we began... Uh, this last time we met, I should say, which was two weeks ago, we began this, what is the second interlude in the book of Revelation, which interrupts the cycle of God's judgment to look at how the church fares during this period of time we're calling the church age or the age of grace, really the time between the advents of Christ. Revelation uh, chapters 8 and 9 depict The trumpet judgments, those direct judgments which come from heaven down to earth that destroy one-third of all they touch. 
And we also see the opening of the bottomless pit or the abyss as demonic hordes are unleashed to torment and kill those who dwell on the earth. But after the sounding of the sixth trumpet, instead of moving right on to the seventh trumpet, we get two interlude visions. A break in the action to see what is happening to the church. And the first of these two interlude visions occurs in Revelation chapter 10. We see this mighty angel who resembles Christ. He comes down out of heaven holding a little book in his hand which is open. And then this angel gives this little book to John and then commands John to eat it. At which point then we see that this book is bittersweet in his stomach. And then he commands John to prophesy to many nations and kings and peoples about what the word was that he had consumed. So that kind of brings us up to speed. That is essentially what happened in John, or Revelation chapter 10. But before we get into tonight's lesson, Revelation chapter 11, I want to take a few moments and it might not be a few moments, <laughs> it might be several moments, uh, it may be many moments, but I want to take a few moments to talk about the temple of God. And the reason being because 11, Revelation 11 opens with this image of John being given a rod and told to measure the temple. And if we don't properly understand the temple and the imagery here, I really think we're going to have a hard time understanding the book of Revelation as a whole properly. So, when we want to talk about the temple of God here that we see in Revelation 11, the first thing I want to give to you are two ways not to understand the temple that we see in Revelation, okay? Two ways that we are not to understand this temple imagery that we see in Revelation 11. First... The first way not to understand the temple in Revelation 11 is that this temple is the temple during Jesus' day, okay? The great temple, the second temple, the one that was built after the first temple, the Temple of Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians during the Babylonian conquest in 586 uh, B.C. After the exiles returned 70 years later, they are commanded to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That's the temple that we see during Jesus' day, uh, the second temple. So there are some who believe that this is the temple that we see in Revelation chapter 11. And this view is popular amongst those who hold to a preterist understanding of Revelation. If you remember way, 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 way back when we looked at Revelation chapter 1 and in the introduction material, you can download these off of our sermon audio account. Uh, it would be like the first two, well, actually, it would just be the first lesson, uh, the introduction part one, where we talked about the different modes of interpretation. And one of them is to see Revelation in a preterist view. In other words, everything in the book of Revelation fulfilled in the past. Okay, that's what preterist means. Fulfilled in the past. And the reason that these people, these preterists who say that this temple in Revelation 11 is that second temple, that uh, temple that stood during Jesus' days, because they'll point to what Jesus says 
in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse. And in Luke 21, 24, Jesus says, as he's answering the questions of the disciples as to when these things, these prophecies that Jesus talks about the temple, how there will not be one stone standing upon another, how these will be fulfilled. And in that verse, 21, verse 24, Jesus says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led astray captive into all nations. That is the residents of Jerusalem and Judea. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So these predators will say, okay, see what Jesus says there in Luke 21, 24. And then they look at Revelation 11 and 2 and say, leave out the court which is outside of the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And they'll say, see, Jesus says in Luke 21, 24, the Gentiles will trample uh, Jerusalem in Revelation 11, verse 2, Gentiles will tread on the holy city. Now, these preterists, they'll say, well, that's why we believe in an early date of the writing of Revelation. Again, if you remember from the introduction, we said there are two main views as to when Revelation was written. The first one, the preterist one. Well, let me back that up. Not the preterist view. One view is the early date, which says it is before 70 AD, before the temple was destroyed, before Jerusalem was destroyed, which is why... This view of the temple is popular amongst those who also hold to an early date. Now, preterists, of course, will also hold to an early date because they believe everything was fulfilled in the past and that 70 AD was really sort of this epochal moment that fulfills everything in the book of Revelation. Because after 70 AD, if you, if you believe that it was written after 70 AD, then there was no temple. So why are we talking about a temple in Revelation 11 if there's no temple in Jerusalem? That's the first way not, in my opinion, not to understand the temple in Revelation 11. The second way, the second view, in my opinion, how not to view the temple of Revelation 11 is to see it as the millennial temple prophesied in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. A literal temple constructed on Mount Zion at some point in the future. And this view is held by many, if not all, dispensationalists who hold to a futurist understanding of Revelation. So if the preterist sees everything in Revelation being fulfilled in the past, the futurist sees everything in Revelation being fulfilled in the future, or most of it, I should say. And in Ezekiel chapters 40-48, through 48, the prophet Ezekiel is told to measure the temple that he sees there. He gets a vision of the temple. Now again, Ezekiel is a now, he's not really a post-exilic prophet. He's sort of like a, an exilic and then... Well, he's really sort of like pre-exilic into exilic prophet. And he gets a vision of the temple after it's already been destroyed. And he's told to measure it and all this stuff. So this would not be the second temple, uh, but a future temple that will be defiled during a future tribulation period by... Uh, the, abomination, uh, the abomination of desolation that we see in Mark chapter 13, verse 14, and whom Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So consequently, then, the dispensationalists also hold then to a late date of writing that is 
after 90 AD, which is also what my view of the date of writing is. I also hold to a late date, but I'm not a dispensationalist. But because they say that the Temple of Revelation 11 speaks to a future temple, they hold to a later date of writing. Now again, just to reiterate, I said these are two ways not to understand the temple in Revelation 11. And the reason I say this is because these two views of the temple fail to remember that Revelation is a book of apocalyptic prophecy. It's very important. That's the genre of the book of Revelation. It is apocalyptic prophecy. So these visions and these images that we see in the book are usually not to be taken in a woodenly literal manner. John, as the recipient of these visions, is simply describing what he sees. But these images are representations of a spiritual, heavenly reality. So then, if, these, if, if it's not the temple of Jesus' day, and if it's not some future temple that is going to be built later in the future on Mount Zion, leading into the Great Tribulation period, what is the temple of Revelation 11? And that's a great question. I'm glad you all asked that question of me, okay? Because here, well, I guess another question to be asked is this. What does the temple represent in Scripture? What does the temple represent in Scripture? Well, the temple in Scripture represents the presence of God with His people. The temple is a representation of the presence of God with His people. All the way back in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, we see that Eden was a temple garden set upon the mountain of God in the very beginning upon which Adam was placed in this garden as a priest king to tend and guard and watch over the temple garden of God. And in that temple garden, he spoke and communed and fellowship with God uh, as you know, we are all meant to do at some point in the future. So he was sent there to guard the temple. The temple was the presence of God amongst his people. The Garden of Eden was a place in which God lived and dwelt with his people. After the fall, after uh, the, the the bondage and slavery in Egypt, when the people have left Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land, uh, we see then the tabernacle of those wilderness journeys, this temple, this, or this tent, I should say, this traveling tent that Moses was instructed to have the people of Israel build according to the pattern of the heavenly temple that God showed to him while he was on Mount Sinai. So this tabernacle was sort of like a traveling tent. It was a mobile temple constructed, as I said earlier, according to the pattern of the heavenly temple where God dwells. And God would appear and speak with Moses when the tabernacle was erected. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies. God's earthly throne was kept there. Representing, I should say, his heavenly throne upon which he actually sits. 
Then later on, after the Exodus and the conquest of the Promised Land, and we get the kings, David uh, desires then to build a temple for, for God, and he is not allowed to, but his son Solomon builds a temple, which is a permanent version of the tabernacle. Now, permanently resting on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And again, the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne, being in the Holy of Holies, and all that. Now, all of these things, the Garden of Eden, the Tabernacle, the Temple, all of them are representations of God dwelling amongst His people. And in that great, wonderful covenant phrase we hear so often, God says He will be their God and that they will be His people. Now, fast forward to the New Testament, and Jesus breaks forth onto the scene, and it is said of Him that He shall be called what? His name shall be called Emmanuel. Great name for a church. Emmanuel. God with us. John 1.14 tells us that the eternal Word who dwelt with God, who was God in the beginning, became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And then in John chapter 2, verses 19-20, through 20, Jesus tells us that He spoke of the rebuilding of the temple when He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the people are like, what are you talking about, Jesus? It has taken us 46 years to build this temple. And then John gives us the commentary that Jesus was talking about the temple of His body. The temple of His body. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the temple represents. And after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, He then sends the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday upon the church. And then the church becomes the body of Christ. The church becomes the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. As such, then, the church is described in several places in the New Testament as a temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Paul says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You want another one? I got another one here for you. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building is being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Would you like another one? I've got another one. First Peter verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Coming to Him, that is to Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Love that language. You just see that temple, sacrificial, worship 
language is being represented now as the church. The church is the temple of God and we ourselves are living stones to sort of paraphrase Pink Floyd, the Pink Floyd song, Another Brick in the Wall. We are living stones in the temple of God. But wait, I've got another one. Individual believers are also temples of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 You heard this last week when Dr. Kerner was here filling in the pulpit. He preached on this verse. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? But wait, I've got even more verses that talk about the church as the temple of God. All, find the, the consummation of all of this temple imagery comes in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, where in Revelation chapter 21 verses 2 and 3, John, I've, I've mentioned this many times before, but John gets this vision, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the temple of God, the tent of God, is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Again, that covenantal language. God is our God. We are His people. The idea of the temple being the dwelling place of God among His people The new Jerusalem is the consummation of all this as it comes down adorned out of heaven as a bride for her bridegroom and God dwells with them. Revelation chapter 21 verses 10 through 14. And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city. Just as a side note, The new Jerusalem is a city and a people. It is both a city and a people. It is the church. The new Jerusalem is the church. I saw the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates in the north, three gates in the south, and three gates in the west. Now, the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So again, this holy city, this new Jerusalem, is a city with twelve gates, representing the twelve tribes of Israel, and 12 foundation stones representing the disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, if you remember the 144,000, it is a combination of the numbers 12 times 12 times 1,000, 12 being representative of the people of God, 24 being represented, or sorry, uh, so 12 and 12, 12 being uh, representative of the people of God, and 1,000 taken to the superlative uh, degree. Here we see 12 and 12. It is the people of God. Finally, last verse, Revelation chapters 21, verses 22 and 23. John says, but I saw no temple in it. He saw no temple in the new Jerusalem. Why? 
For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated the truth, or the Lamb is its life. So this new Jerusalem doesn't need an actual temple. Again, the temple was a representation of God dwelling with His people. Why do you need a representation of God dwelling with His people when God is actually dwelling with His people? That's why the new Jerusalem has no temple. Because God is dwelling in her midst. God and the Lamb dwell in them. They don't need a sun because they will provide the light. The light that comes from God illuminates the new Jerusalem. So that the new Jerusalem is both a city and a people in which there is no temple because the Father and the Lamb will dwell openly in their midst. So, all of this to say, the temple of Revelation chapter 11 is the church. The people of God in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Okay. We'll take a little deep breath here, take a little uh, break here as we relax and take a deep breath and kind of try to absorb all of that. But now we're ready to head into our passage for tonight. So this somewhat long excursus, and I apologize for the length of it, but I think it's very important that we understand this temple imagery. Because if we don't understand this temple imagery correctly, we are going to fail to understand the message of Revelation 11, and we're going to fail to understand perhaps not just the rest of the book of Revelation, but Revelation as a whole. But as we go into this passage tonight, as we come into this passage tonight, Revelation 11, the first 14 verses, essentially can be broken down into four parts. First, the measuring of the temple in verses 1 through 2. Second, the two witnesses, and we'll get to that in a moment, uh, revealed in verses 3 through 6. The two witnesses killed in verses 4 through 10. And the two witnesses resurrected in verses 11 through 14. So without any further ado, let us first look at the measuring of the temple in verses 1 through 2. The vision John received in Revelation 10 continues in Revelation 11, as we see in verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So the same angel who came down with the little book and gave it to John to eat now gives him a measuring rod and then tells him, rise and measure the temple of God. Now again, this is something that we also see in the Old Testament, most notably in the book of Ezekiel. I mentioned this briefly before, but in Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, the prophet says, he took me there and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and fix your mind on everything I show you. For you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. In the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long, each being a cubit and a handbreadth. And he measured the width of the wall structure, one rod, and the height, one rod. And it goes on in verses 15 through 20 of Ezekiel 40. From the front of the entrance gate to the front of the vestibule of the inner gate was 50 cubits. There uh, There were beveled windows 
window frames in the gate chambers and in their intervening archways on the inside of the gateway all around and likewise in the vestibules. There were windows all around on the inside and each gate post were, on each gate post were palm trees. Then he brought me into the outer court and there were chambers and a pavement made all around the court. 30 chambers faced the pavement. The pavement was by the side of the gateways corresponding to the length of the gateways. This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the width of the front of the lower gateway to the front of the inner court exterior, 100 cubits toward the east and the north. On the outer court was also a gateway facing north, and he measured its length and width. Now, later on in Revelation, John will see an angel also measure the new Jerusalem, 2115. We looked at this before, and he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. Now, we already went through some great lengths to argue that the temple here in Revelation and the temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48 is the church, the people of God. But what's with this idea of measuring? Well, measuring connotes knowledge and care. You know something in exquisite detail when you've measured it and you've taken all of its measurements into account. You know everything there is about it. As one writer said, uh, Richard Phillips, in his commentary on Revelation, he said, understanding the vision symbolically, we realize that John is told to measure the temple to show God's commitment to preserve the church through the tribulation of this age. So just as with the sealing of the saints in Revelation 7, here we see God preserving His people during this period of persecution and judgment. So by measuring the temple, we're essentially being told that God knows His people in exquisite detail. Now while John is told to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there, he's told not to measure the outer court. Verse 2. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now the outer court, right, the temple had three parts. The tabernacle as well had three parts. The outer court, the holy place, the most holy place. And the outer court was where the sacrifices were performed at the bronze altar. So if measurement then signifies God's divine protection, what does the command not to measure the outer court mean? Well, it means that the outer court does not have God's protection. If to measure means to protect, then not to measure means it's not protected. Now, there are several ways to interpret this idea of not measuring the outer court and what the outer court represents. And here are two which I find somewhat compelling, actually. First, the outer court represents, and this is one writer's view and probably shared amongst others, but the outer court represents nominal or false believers. Tares, right? Tares in the wheat field of the church. In other words, because they are nominal, because they are false believers, because they have made false professions of faith, because they believe they are Christians when they aren't, they would not expect and there would be no expectation of God's protection over them. That's one view. And I think it's somewhat compelling. 
But the second view, and I think a little more compelling, is this. That we see the contrast here in verses 1 and 2. Protection, no protection. And this gives us the truth that while God's people are preserved against turning away and apostasy and are immune from God's wrath, they are vulnerable to persecution and martyrdom from the world. Right? God's protection, right? When we, we saw this when we looked at the last interlude in Revelation chapter 7. The saints are sealed. They are sealed with God's seal of, of identity, His seal of ownership, His seal of protection. Yet does that protect the church, the saints, from being persecuted? No. Because the second vision in chapter 7 of Revelation we see is of this great multitude before the throne in heaven. And it says that they came out of the great tribulation. Moreover, in the seal judgments, when we saw the fifth seal being broken, what did we see there? We saw the altar in heaven where the prayers of the saints are offered and underneath the altar we see the saints who have been martyred, those who have been beheaded for their faith, and they cry out, How long, O Lord? How long before You vindicate us? Being sealed and protected by the Lord does not mean you are immune from persecution and martyrdom. But you are preserved against falling away from the faith. You are preserved against God's wrath. The judgment of God does not fall upon you. We see this also uh, in the judgments themselves. The church is not su- does not suffer these judgments falling upon them from God. So again, while the first answer has some merit, I feel the second answer fits better with Revelation's overall theme. Consider the fact that God's people are sealed, yet they face martyrdom. They are protected, yet vulnerable. So this outer court then has been sort of, it's, John is told not to measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. And here Gentiles doesn't mean non-Jewish people, it means unbelievers. And they will tread the holy city for 42 months. Now, I'm going to hold off on explaining the 42 months for a little bit, but this reference here to the holy city, what, what does that make you think of? When, not, when you hear the phrase holy city, what, is you, what does that make you think of? Well, for me, it makes me think of Jerusalem at first blush, right? When I hear the holy city, I think Jerusalem. For a Roman Catholic, it would be Rome. But anyway, if, for, for someone who's immersed in the Bible, you think, oh, Jerusalem, the holy city, right? That's where the temple is. It's holy because God is there. But consider, as we, you know, we just read it, and we're going to get to it in, in a moment, but in verse 8, we see that Jerusalem is lumped together with Sodom and Egypt. Right? Jerusalem is lumped together with Sodom and Egypt as part of the great city. The great city. So ever since Jerusalem, now being representative of unbelieving Judaism, ever since Jerusalem rejected and killed her Messiah, she has ceased being the holy city. And then the holy city is now reserved for The new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is the holy city, the one that comes down out of heaven, the church. So when we see here that the holy city is being trampled for 42 months, it is a picture of the church undergoing persecution, undergoing rejection, undergoing martyrdom for a period of 42 months. 
So for this period of 42 months, the church will face persecution even though it is protected by God. Dennis Johnson, who writes a very fine commentary on Revelation, wrote, Though protected from apostasy and God's wrath, the church is exposed to physical coercion, social contempt, and violence. All right, so that's measuring the temple. Uh, next, let's look at verses 3 through 6 as we see now this image of the two witnesses as they are revealed. So now the angel who told John to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there introduces these mysterious two witnesses in verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, of course, your first question is, who are these two witnesses? Now, before we answer the question, who they are, the first question I want to ask, and since I'm giving the lesson, I get to ask the question. The first question I want to ask is, why two witnesses? Why do you think there are two witnesses? Right, because according to the Old Testament, you needed two or three witnesses to validate any charge or claim as being true. So two witnesses tells us that what they say is true. Now, another thing to note is that these two witnesses will be given power to prophesy. In other words, the power is not within them, but it is a heavenly power to speak forth the words of God. Again, think of Jesus as He gives His charge to the disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. He says to them before He ascends into heaven, but you, My disciples, shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be My witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So again, this... I'm probably... I'm going to give you a spoiler alert here, okay? The two witnesses, I'm going to argue, are the church. And the reason I'm going to argue they're the church because of this verse that we read here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The two witnesses are given power to prophesy. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You shall receive power to be My witnesses as they prophesy and speak forth in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So I spoiled the surprise, okay? Deal with it. But the fact that these witnesses are clothed in sackcloth also indicates that their message is a message of repentance, right? That's what John the Baptist, when he first came on the scene, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God was at hand. And then Jesus, following John the Baptist, comes on the scene, and the first words out of his mouth are, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The, the message of the prophetic message of these witnesses is the message of the kingdom of God, which is what? Repent. Yes, repent. The idea of being clothed in sackcloth indicates the message is a message of repentance. Now, their power to prophesy here is for a period of time, an odd period of time, 1,260 days. Now, in verse 2, we saw that the holy city, the temple, Jerusalem, or the new Jerusalem, the church, I should say, that the holy city will be trampled underfoot for 42 months. Now, we're going to do a little math here, okay? 
you take 42 months, if you take the normal Jewish um, reckoning of a month as 30 days per month, 42 times 30 gives you, I'll give you a guess what number that comes out to. And I'm, I'll give, in fact, I'll give you, I'll be generous. I'll give you three guesses what that number comes out to, but the first two don't count. When you take 42 and multiply it by 30, what do you think it comes up to? That's right, 1,260 days. This is the same period of time. Of course, this works out to three and a half years. The two witnesses will prophesy for the same length of time that the holy city is besieged. So we're talking about the same period of time. The 42 months is the same period of time as the 1,260 days. Now, of course, the $64,000 question is this. What is the significance of this time period? Well, to understand that, we need to turn to the prophet Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet is given a vision of four beasts. Okay, He sees one that is like a lion, one that is like a bear, one that is like a leopard, and then a dreadful beast that is, is horrific to, to look at. And then later on, Daniel is told the meaning of, these, of this vision of the four beasts and that the four beasts are successive kingdoms or successive kings. And when Daniel asks about the, the dreadful one, the fourth kingdom, the angel that reveals this to him says to him in Daniel 7, verse 25, he, this fourth king or dreadful beast, fourth kingdom, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for, okay, now note this, a time and times and half a time. Now there's a lot there. There's a lot in Daniel 7. And Lord willing, I hope to preach in the, uh, through the book of Daniel, uh, we'll be taking a break from our uh, sermon series through the Gospel of John, probably mid-November, right around the time of uh, Thanksgiving, maybe a little bit before. We'll take a break once we get through John chapter 8, and I'll, uh, my, my desire is to preach through the book of Daniel. We'll, we'll go into a lot more detail then about those visions in Daniel, but there's a lot there. But for the purposes of this, uh, the fourth kingdom... There shall arise a king who will persecute the saints, as we see here, for a time and times and half a time. So if you, if you formulate it like this, a time is a year. So a time, one year, times, that's two years, and half a time, that's half a year. So one and two is three, plus a half is three and a half years. Same period as 42 months and 1,260 days. We also see in Daniel chapter 9 the famous prophecy of the 70 weeks. Now, again, in that prophecy, a week is a span of seven years, okay? So 69 weeks, that Daniel's told in that prophecy, there are 69 weeks that will take you from the proclamation to rebuild Jerusalem to the time of Messiah. That's 69 weeks, right? Daniel, again, post-exilic prophet, he is in, he's actually in Babylon and um, he's there his entire life, but he's told, and he gets this vision as the, the, the 70 years are almost up, 
So he looks into this and he gets this vision of the 70 weeks. And he's told, 69 weeks will take you from the time that, that uh, a decree will go out to rebuild Jerusalem until the time of Messiah. And then there's this 70th week, this mysterious 70th week. What about the 70th week? He doesn't talk about the 70th week as much. Well, the 70th week is the time of Messiah. And we see that this week comes in two parts. Daniel 9, verse 27. Then he, this is Messiah. Now there's, there's a little bit of confusion as to whom the he refers to. Is it the Messiah or is it the prince of the, you know, the kingdom to come? In other words, the Antichrist. In other words, this, this beastly figure. Uh, I believe it refers to the Messiah. Then he, the Messiah, shall confirm a covenant with many, his people, the saints, for one week, seven years. But in the middle of that week, what's that? Wait, middle of the week? What is that? Seven-year period? Three and a half years. The middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So that is a signal that the, the, the temple will be destroyed because that will signal the end of sacrifices and offerings when the temple is no longer there and they can no longer offer sacrifices and offerings. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, now the Antichrist, the beast, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, all of this to say that the remaining half a week, right? Remember, Messiah makes a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. So now you've got a half a week left, a three and a half year period left. That remaining half week of Daniel 9.27, three and a half, is the same as 42 months, is the same as 1,260 days, is the same as time, times, and half a time. It's the age that we have been concerned with all along in the book of Revelation. The church age. So, during the church age, the church will be protected by God, yet vulnerable to persecution. And also, these two witnesses will be empowered to prophesy during this age. Whew! That's a lot, right? Okay, I apologize, but I told you this chapter was important. This is a lot of material. I'm sure it's pretty hard to absorb. And I would encourage you, once we're done with this, uh, and once this gets posted on uh, Lord willing, on this coming Friday, that you take the time to listen to this again uh, if there's any parts of it that you are confused with or, or have questions on. I'm sure, we'll, we'll, of course, we'll take questions after we're done here tonight. But uh, again, I encourage you, re-listen to this or just ask me uh, when you, you know, get a chance. But um, time to take another deep breath. And now... Let's answer the question that has been on everyone's mind. Who then are these two witnesses? Well, these two witnesses we see in verse 4 are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So there you go. You want to know who the two witnesses are? They're two olive trees and two lampstands. Is that, does that help you? Right? No, that's not very helpful to me either. But... Using the Reformed principle of the analogy of faith, the analogia fide, Scripture interprets Scripture, we need to see how these images are used in the Old Testament. And for that, we need to turn to Zechariah chapter 4. 
Zechariah chapter 4. And again, I'm going to have a somewhat lengthy passage here, verses 2 through 14. So, told you this might be long. And if I'm keeping you here past your bedtime, I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, I, I warned you. <laughs> anyway, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 14. And he said to me, What do you see? He said to the prophet, an angel saying to the prophet. So I said, I'm looking, and there is a lampstand, a solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees, ding, 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 two olive trees, are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered, this is Zechariah, and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? Okay. Let me just take a quick pause here. I find that funny. I don't know if you find that funny. I find that funny. Zechariah says, Who are these? Who are these two olive trees, my Lord? And the angel says, Do you not know who these are? If I'm Zechariah, if if the angel asked me, I'd be like, That's why I asked you! Because I don't know who they are. Anyway. And I said, no, my Lord, verse 6. So he answered me and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Plumb line is something you measure with. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? (laughs) And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two appointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now again, again, look at Revelation 4. You can go back to Revelation, or sorry, Revelation 11, verse 4. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Zechariah 4.14, these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Now the context of Zechariah 4 suggests that the two olive trees are Zerubbabel. We've already seen his name there, right? He is the governor who is in charge of the rebuilding project as the exiles come back to Jerusalem. And Joshua, the high priest during that time. The two witnesses then represent the king and the high priest. And moreover, if you think about this imagery of lampstands, where else do we see imagery of lampstands? Yeah, yeah, earlier in Revelation, right? The seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's what we saw in Revelation 1 verse 20. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus, the Son of Man, uh, is standing amongst His lampstands. And then finally... In Revelation 1.6, speaks of how Jesus has made us, the church, kings and priests 
to his God and Father. Now, remember, the two olive trees, Zerubbabel and Joshua, governor, king, and high priest. And we, the church, are kings and priests to his God and to his temple. So when you put all of this together, the two witnesses symbolize the whole church in its role as witnesses to God's truth and against the world's lies and wickedness. So the two witnesses symbolize the whole church in its role as witnesses to God's truth and against the world's lies and wickedness. So I told you, I spoiled it earlier, the two witnesses are the church, but again, this imagery is explained when you look back at the Old Testament and compare Scripture with Scripture. So the two witnesses are the church. Now we see that these two witnesses are protected during the 1,260 days of their testimony, verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 11. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. The imagery in these verses calls to mind the ministries, of course, of Moses and Elijah. And that's why uh, our dispensationalist brothers and sisters will say that these two witnesses are literally Moses and Elijah. But as Elijah called fire down from heaven and he prayed to God to shut the heavens from raining for three years, we also see here Moses in the Old Testament turned water into blood and called forth the heavenly plagues. The point, of course, in all of this is not to say that these things will literally happen. Remember, apocalyptic prophecy. But what we're seeing here is that while this gospel message of hope and salvation is being put forth, it is also a message of judgment. We looked at this three weeks ago when we were last in Revelation, how the little book that John eats is a bittersweet message uh, and how the gospel is a bittersweet message. And we referenced 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in which Paul says, or maybe it's 2 Corinthians 3, my apologies, uh, where Paul says that this message that we bring makes us the savor or the smell, the aroma of life to those who are believing. But then we are also the aroma of death to those who are not being saved. So again, the same gospel message can smell sweet to those who are being saved, also reeks of death to those who are being judged. And again, we see here that the gospel message of hope also brings judgment as these two witnesses pronounce judgment on the wicked. Not literal fire. All of those just are just pictures of God's ultimate judgment. And that's what the gospel message says. Repent of your sins or face God's judgment. The gospel has the power to overcome God's enemies, either turning them into believers or hardening their hearts for judgment. And now, hopefully the rest of us will go a little quicker now. Uh, in verses 7-10, through 10, we see the two witnesses killed. So what happens here when the two witnesses finish their testimony? We'll look at verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So the beast will, uh, the beast will 
make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And the message of the gospel incites the hatred of the world. We shouldn't be surprised at this. This much is obvious throughout the history of the church. But John here now sees this beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Now, I've already taken you through the temple as the church and the whole thing about the 1,260 days. Don't worry. We're going to save the beast until we actually get to Revelation chapter 13. But this beast of Revelation 13 is the same beast we see here in Revelation 11 verse 7. He ascends out of the bottomless pit, which means that his power... And his influence are what? Right, demonic. They are demonic. And this beast, when the 42 months or the 1,260 days are done, will make war against them, the holy city, the saints, the church, the two witnesses, overcome them, the two witnesses, and kill them, the two witnesses. Now to further prove that these two witnesses are indeed the church. Just in case you were, you're not sure that maybe I'm just pulling this out of whole cloth, look over at Revelation verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 7, where it says there, it was granted to him, this is the beast that rises up out of the sea, to make war with the saints, to overcome them, the saints, and authority was given, over, uh, given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So Revelation 11:7 says, that the beast will make war against them, the two witnesses, and overcome them, the two witnesses. Revelation 13.7 says the beast will make war with the saints and overcome the saints. The two witnesses are the saints, are the church. Now the church is always facing persecution and martyrdom. And when their task is complete, they will be called home. However, it will seem to the world that they have defeated the church and silenced her testimony. And, beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, when the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus and had him crucified, they thought they had won. But ultimately, what what they did was played right into God's redemptive historical plans. Through his crucifixion, Jesus won the victory over sin and death and dealt the death blow to Satan. And the same for the church. The world will think they've beaten the church, but as Paul says in Philippians, death is what? Death is gain. If you kill me, in the, in the, if, if I'm out there witnessing to the world, doing my job as, one of, as a member of the church, as a minister of the Word of, of God, as, as a gospel minister, as one of the two witnesses, as a member of this thing called the church, if I'm out there doing my job and the world kills me, they've just done me a favor because they have just ushered me into the presence of Jesus. I will be with Him face to face. Jesus says to his disciples, do not fear those, right, who can destroy body. But fear him, God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So notice here in verses 8 through 10 how the beasts in the world react when they've overcome the two witnesses. And their dead bodies will lie in the street 
of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So we see that the bodies of the witnesses will be treated shamefully and not be buried, uh, leaving bodies to lie and rot in the street is the height of disrespect. And then those who dwell on the earth, once the two witnesses are killed, once the church is, is done away with, once they think they have silenced the church and its witness, they're going to throw a party. They're going to throw a huge party. Just a final word before we move on. Uh, note in verse 8 that the bodies of the witnesses will be left on the street of the great city. And here we see the great city is described in three ways. It's described as Sodom, which represents evil, wickedness, debauchery, you know, just kind of sin, run amok. Uh, it's described as Egypt. And Egypt was the place of bondage and slavery for God's people. And it's described as where our Lord was crucified. And just another way of saying Jerusalem, which represents the unbelief and apostasy and rejection of Jesus. The great city is all of that. So the great city is a place where sin runs amok. The great city is a place where slavery and oppression occur. And the great city is a place where unbelief, apostasy, and rejection of Jesus are celebrated. In fact, it's all representative of Babylon, right? Not the literal city of Babylon, but the idea of what Babylon represents. Everything that is opposed to God and his people and his word and his son is Babylon. Revelation 18.2 calls Babylon the great city. And then finally, finally, <laughs> verses 11 through 14, we see the two witnesses resurrected. We saw a moment ago when the beasts in the world overcome the two witnesses, their victory will be short-lived. Three and a half days. Verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Now the reference to three and a half days could be related to the three and a half years or 42 months, 1,260 days earlier in the passage. In other words, Compared to the time that the witnesses will be allowed to prophesy and to, to rain judgment on the people, uh, uh, on the wicked, the victory of the beast in the world will be a small fraction of that period of time. The church, you know, they say, you know, they, 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 they killed them because they tormented those who dwell on the earth. They tormented them for 42 months. Here they get to celebrate for three and a half days. But here we see the ultimate vindication of the church and those who faithfully bore the testimony of the Lamb. As we see the breath of life from God makes one immediately think, of course, of Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. And the slain witnesses are resurrected. And when that happens, great fear fell on those who saw. Yeah, that's understandable, right? Hey, we killed these two. Whoa, they're back up again. Oh my goodness. Great fear fell upon those who saw them. Their victory is almost immediately turned into defeat. And as fear is falling on those who dwell on the earth, they hear a loud voice 
from heaven, verse 12, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, to the two witnesses, the church, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. God calls his church up to heaven. They no longer, the church no longer, because they've been resurrected, they no longer belong to this earth. Their mission is done and their home now is in heaven with God and His Son and they will be part of that innumerable host that stands before the throne of God worshiping the Lamb who sits upon the throne like we saw in Revelation 7. They ascend into heaven in a cloud and their enemies were witnesses to it. A picture of complete vindication. Those whom they thought they had done away with, whom they have killed, whom they have thought they let to rot in the streets, they are in heaven. Vindication. And then immediately after the church is called home, we see judgment begin to fall. Verse 13, In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Of course, earthquake language, as we've seen before in Revelation, suggests judgment. And this earthquake kills 7,000 people and destroys a tenth of the city. It's a partial judgment. But it's also sort of that, the warning shot before the kill shot is fired. It's preparatory for the third and final woe to come, the seventh trumpet. And the people here giving glory to God aren't people repenting of their sin and willingly bending the knee to King Jesus. They're the ones who will, when Jesus returns, be forced to bend the knee and confess with the tongue that Jesus is indeed Lord and King to the glory of God forever. Well, that's it. A marathon, but we're done. This vision closes, though, with the words of chapter 11, verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Two woes down, one more to go. The ominous warning in verse 14 reminds us there is still one more trumpet to be blown. But what we see here is a picture of the church's activity during the church age. The church, that includes us now, here, 2021 in Sutton, Nebraska. The church is to be a faithful witness to the world. We are the olive trees and the lampstands shining the light of Christ into a dark world. We are, to use the language we saw earlier in Revelation 7, we are the church militant, proclaiming the gospel message as the holy city is under siege. We are the church militant fighting, not with weapons of physical earthly types, but with the Word of God, with our heavenly weapons and our spiritual armor. We are fighting. We are the church militant. As our city is, being, is under siege, we are proclaiming the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ into this world. Repent, for the Kingdom of God is at hand. It amazes me that those who hold to a post-millennial view, and we'll talk about the millennial views when we get uh, to that point later in Revelation, but in brief, those who hold to a post-millennial view see a much happier ending to um, history. 
They see the gradual increase of the kingdom of God, the gradual taking over of the world by the kingdom of God, the church. And then when Christ returns, he'll return after the millennium, after this golden age, he will return to the kingdom of God already established by the church. But it amazes me that those who hold to a post-millennial view, um, that there are those who do that uh, with the accompanying triumphalism that is associated with it. Typically, you see a very triumphalistic, over-realized eschatology with those who hold a post-millennial view. Now, I'm sure they, they will not def- deny that the gospel faces opposition. They wouldn't deny that. But again, they view the church as growing in a Christian golden age, emerging right before the return of Christ. But here we see once the time of the church's testimony is done, it's not that the Christ comes and says, oh, thank you for establishing the kingdom of God. No, it says the beast overcomes them. The church will be vindicated at Christ's return. She will become the church triumphant. But that triumph is realized when Christ returns to conquer both his and our enemies at the end of this age. Well, that concludes our lesson tonight. Next time, Lord willing, in two weeks, on September 19th, we will look at Revelation uh, chapter 15, 11, sorry, verses 15 through 19, a much shorter passage. Hopefully we'll go a little quicker as we look at the seventh trumpet. Remember, two woes down, a third woe is yet to come. We'll look at the seventh trumpet next time.